Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Dr. Michael Shermer, founder of the Skeptic Society and publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He's the author of numerous books on science and skepticism, and he's appeared on TV many times. And we're here to talk about his latest project, Conspiracies and Conspiracy Theories for the Great Courses and Audible. So, Dr. Shermer, thank you for being here and welcome. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me. You, you were one of my inspirations to do this course because I loved your book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. As you know, I quote from it in numerous of the 12 lectures. Yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to, to come across my name a couple of times as I was uh, listening to it. Now, this is uh, it's an interesting project. and I think it's kind of like a new thing for Audible and the Great Courses. Uh, it's kind of almost like a collaboration. It's almost like a, a book or a course. I mean, what, yeah, so they, they, they're they branching out and trying different things. You know, uh, Audible actually had evolved from uh, books on tape back in the 80s and 90s. I used to listen to audio books on cassette tapes with a Sony Walkman. That's how far back I go. Uh, <laughs> and it was always a great way to consume content when you're driving or working out or doing chores or whatever. So I, I would do that. Then I had already done a course. For the teaching company Skepticism 101, it's based on the course I teach at Chapman University, and um, and so w- one of the chapters was on conspiracy theories because that's a topic we deal with in Skeptic Magazine all the time. And so then I thought, well, they should do a course on just on conspiracy theories because there was nothing in the catalog of of the great courses on conspiracy theories. And I thought, well, that would be a good uh, time to do it. And there's a ton of books. I get you know, uh, books for review all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I had a huge stack of conspiracy books, including yours. And I thought, well, I got it all right here. I could just knock out a course probably in a, in a few months. So I did, uh, you know, since the Trump election, you know, conspiracy theories are back in the news uh, big time. So I think it is pretty important to deal with it, uh, particularly so many of these, you know, uh, sort of white supremacists and populists and extremists of left and right have conspiracy theories behind them for what motivates them, at least what they say motivates them. So I thought, boy, this is really an important topic, not just a kind of a fringe, like dealing with the flat earthers like like you've done so well. It's kind of fun, but they're pretty harmless. Yeah. You know, they're not going to go out and commit mass genocide in the name of the flat earthers versus the globalists, <laughs> Hopefully uh, <not>. <laughs> you know, but, 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 conspir- but other conspiracy theorists, you know, they, they are uh, potentially dangerous. So it's important. We yeah. understand them. Yeah. And that's certainly a theme that runs through, runs through your book, the real harm of conspiracy theorists. Uh, and you know, I really like the way you, you, you did the book in that you, I think, try to give a lot of context to things. And you start off with the book in like uh, in lesson number one. You talk about you know the, some very obvious things like the Christchurch shooting uh, in New Zealand, uh, where some guy shot up a mosque, and he was kind of like basing his rationale for that on, essentially on con- cons- conspiracy theorists. So you know there there are things that you you set out saying the harm is real, which I think yeah. is very important. Yeah, the um, you know when these guys post their so-called manifestos, and you can go back to read, uh, say the Unabomber's manifesto, they are really a type of conspiracy theory, uh, either uh, overt conspiracy where some government agent or agency is doing something to us, or it's more of a sort of subtle long-term trends of history conspiracy theory where you know technological society is moving in this direction and it's ruining our lives and we have to reverse it case of the Unabomber. Those are all kinds of conspiracy theories, things that they think are true, that we can test whether they're true or not, but have effects on behavior. Yeah. And yeah, another kind of thing you do in the book, I think quite well, is that you, uh, you make the point throughout the book 
but especially in the first chapter and the last chapter, that there are lots of very real conspiracies and that we need to yeah. be aware aware of these things as well. So, I mean, that's kind of like the subtitle of your book is like, what should you believe and, and why? Uh, so, you know, you, you start out, and I think this is a great way of talking to conspiracy theorists, is starting out by listing a whole bunch of, of very real conspiracies. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, it's not it, it, it's also a good strategy in terms of like what you talk about in escaping the rabbit hole of how, how you talk to people in a way to engage them so they'll be honest and forthright with their beliefs. One way is to acknowledge that sometimes they may be right. And I find this th the case when I was on Joe Rogan's show se several times that you've been on. You know, he's he's really open to a lot of these conspiracy theories, I think maybe more open minded than I am about some of them. But the but but the fact is, sometimes even Alex Jones is right. <laughs> and so we have to we have to acknowledge that we can't just say, well, because Alex Jones said it, that therefore it can't be true because he's he's crazy. Sometimes he's right. Uh, and so the, the you know, the rub here is, well, w which are the true conspiracy theories and which are the false conspiracy theories? So that's why I, that's why I started making a distinction between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory. A conspiracy is, you know, a plot, or, uh, you know, in, in secret by two or more people to gain a moral or, uh, or illegal, immoral or illegal advantage over somebody else or some other group of people. That that does happen. Then the, the theory is the structured belief system around the conspiracy itself. The question is, is the conspiracy theory true or not, which would then reflect on whether the conspiracy itself happened or not. All right. So, yeah. So like, you know, what is real and what isn't? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very, a very difficult thing. Uh, like we talk about the demarcation problem, like you, you mentioned that later on. Uh, but I, moving on to like kind of lesson two here, you talk about the different ways of classifying conspiracy theories. And there seems to be like lots of different ways in which people like classify what is a conspiracy theory and what are the types of conspiracy theory. I mean, do you think there's like some kind of confusion here that we need to kind of settle on a, 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 a language that we can all use to talk about them? Yeah, I, I found that quite interesting um, that there was no kind of theoretical model over the study of conspiracy theories like in other branches of the social sciences, you know, the theorists and the experimentalists have, have kind of settled on a particular framework about how they're going to talk about the subject and test it and, and, and then try to find some causal explanations for whatever it is they're studying. There wasn't really, there, there still isn't really anything quite like that for conspiracies um, and conspiracy theories, I think in part because it's always been treated by scientists as kind of a fringy, nutty, uh, borderland, mm -hmm. borderlands area that real scientists don't study. And it's only just recently, maybe in the last 10, 15 years, that a handful of social scientists have said, well, let's actually study this. Let's actually do a survey and find out how many Americans or Brits or Europeans or Germans or whatever believe this or that, and not just the moon landing or, or, or some, some crazy flat earthers or things like that, but, but, but other things like to what extent do you think the government... Uh, has conspired to uh, alter the immigration policy that will harm our nation. You know that's yeah. a that's a real issue that's in the news pretty much every day. Um, and you know so that's why you know I I, I kind of dove into that. I'll just go through these some of these from my notes because I haven't looked at this in a while. But you know just by category, you know anti-Semitism, aliens, aviation, government, medicine, religion, science and technology, suspicious deaths 
course, is always a popular one. Yeah, the, the Clinton Clinton body count is. A very oh yes, well thing you nowadays. know it went it, it went up with Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, uh, his suicide. <laughs> that was actually an interesting case on Twitter because I was I was posting skepticism about the uh, Jeffrey Epstein so-called suicide that maybe he was murdered. I was pretty yeah. skeptical of that. Until, you know, the story about the two cameras both failed in the hallways. Like, okay, that does look pretty bad. You know, now that's not proof that he was murdered or that, that the Clintons or whoever ordered him to be murdered. Maybe it was that, you know, cameras do fail. It's possible. But it to me, it was almost reaching that tipping point or that kind of demarcation line you talk about. Of yeah. Like, you know, enough stuff builds up and you think, okay, that, that, that's pretty suspicious. Yeah, I think you know, it's, it's certainly uh, it's it's very difficult to uh, just when people just list the facts like that. You know, the, the guard didn't check on him; he was taken off suicide watch, and then the cameras weren't working, and uh, you know, he had access to a, a bunk bed to hang himself from. It all seems very suspicious, but of course, yeah. it all it all could be things that uh, are coincidences, or maybe not even so much coincidences. Like they they had a crappy video system in the in the jail, or things like that. It's, it's difficult to tell without context. But you can, you can certainly see how people would get yeah. uh, suspicious about things like that. After I posted that on, on Twitter, somebody who works in the prison system wrote me to say, yeah. you know what, actually the video camera systems are pretty crappy in these prisons, <laughs> and, they, and they break down all the time. I went, oh, okay, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should go back to being skeptical of, <laughs> of the Epstein case. I like the framework that uh, Jesse Walker uh, outlined in the United States of Paranoia. He has uh, five different types of conspiracy theories. The enemy outside uh, theories based on figures alleged to be scheming against a community from without. And then the enemy within conspirators are working within our nation or our group. The enemy above some powerful people manipulating things. The enemy below features the lower classes working to overturn the hmm. social order. A lot of conspiracies about unions and, and Marxists and things like that. And then his fifth one was the benevolent conspiracies are angelic forces that work behind the scenes to improve the world and help people. I find almost no conspiracy theories are positive like that. You know, when when you, you, you track moral progress over the centuries, like people like myself and Steven Pinker have done, there, there are very rarely conspiracy theories about, you know, people working to make things better. Uh, you know, most of the conspiracy theories have a negative valence to them. You know, people are conspiring to do harm to somebody else, you know, so. Yeah. Anyway, I, I like that. Um, yeah, I thought that was probably the most interesting of the, the different frameworks. Uh, I mean, how, how do you classify conspiracy theories? I, I I kind of don't really. I mean, I, th I think in a way I would do it just on the simple way that you listed by the types of theories, like, you know, aliens, anti-Semitism, whatever, science, because I, I look at like individual things like chemtrails. And um, I, I find, you know, with the spectrum, things kind of an individual uh, conspiracy can span the spectrum quite a bit. So it, it can kind of cross over various categories. Uh, like with uh, with the nine eleven stuff, you, you you could be part of some kind of new world order Zionist, uh, you know, Illuminati type thing, or it could just be you know something smaller, like the project for a new American century, wanting to to further their their goals in the Middle East. So it, the the there are the answer was necessarily easy to pigeonhole. So perhaps we do need these yeah. different ways of classifying them, like you. Know, you you slice them this way and you slice them that way and you, you get a different perspective on uh, on what it is. 
Yeah, I, I added my own, just a twofold one of paranoid conspiracy theories versus realistic conspiracy theories. So the paranoid ones include aliens, evil forces, world domination schemes, or cabal, cabal so numerous and plots so complicated that it can never be pulled off, like the Bilderbergers, Rockefellers, and Rothschilds running the world's economies and obviously doing a crappy job of it. <laughs> the Illuminati determining political elections and power relations, even 9-11 is an inside job. I consider all those to be too, too paranoid to be realistic and realistic ones more like, you know, Volkswagen conspiring to cheat the emission regulations in Europe, you know, Watergate, maybe the Russian hacking of the 2016 election, you know, those, uh, you know, Wells Fargo opening fake bank accounts. Those things are not only are they real, but that's really more accurate of what actually happens. Most conspiracies that are real are, are kind of more narrowly focused uh, you know, some direct targeted thing, just that thing right there, you know, so you can definitely see like Putin and his colleagues there operating to manipulate social media to give Trump, you know, it's sure. a very specific thing. It's not like the conspiracy theory is that Putin wants to take over the world, you know, it's, it's which like he probably does. <laughs> he, 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 he may very well, or at least probably wants to cobble together something like a USSR in all those yeah. Baltic states and so on. He, he would probably like to do that. I don't think he can do that anymore. You know, just, just what he did in with the Crimea, that was a conspiracy, and he pulled it off, uh, although it wasn't such a secret conspiracy. So, but he kind of tried to make it that way. Remember, the Russian soldiers were not wearing uniforms, and the so it wasn't clear who, who it was. Little green so men, they called them. That was an interesting yeah. thing. Uh, they, re they referred to them as little green men because I think they, they wore green. I guess they were, they were short or something. But then a bunch right. of people thought that was evidence that there were aliens in our midst because there were stories about the army talking about little green men. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, a short-lived uh, short right. flurry of uh, interesting aliens at the time. But a couple but, of generalizations that uh, some social scientists have made is, is having to do with power. Uh, that is, people out of power tend to think people in power have more power than they mm -hmm. actually have, and therefore that makes them more paranoid or more uh, concerned or anxious about what they may be doing behind closed doors. Yeah. Now it turns out that you know that, that, that Fortune 500 CEOs and and major politicians generally don't have as much power as we think that they do, and the people that get in there are often surprised about what they can't do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like my, the joke I make about, you know, when you get elected president, they take you in the back room and they go, okay, here's what's actually going on in the Middle East. This is why we can't pull the troops out. This is why we can't uh -huh. close Gitmo. This is why we can't end this war and so on. And, and, and look what just happened yesterday with, you know, Trump says, you know, okay, I'm going to pull the troops out of, uh, out of Northern Syria and, and Turkey's going to go do their thing. You know, it's like, we've been there forever. Enough is enough. Boom. Even his own party leaders were, you know, hard on that. It's like, wait we were doing what again now because i didn't really follow that the kurds and this and that oh okay so we've been knee deep in the muddy there for a long time and you know a lot of this stuff goes on behind closed doors and phone calls and so on and then stuff happens that's a kind of conspiracy but again it's very narrowly focused having to do with power and uh you know so some of the research shows for example that it, there's no racial differences in conspiracy conspiracy um thinking you know but 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 the target of the conspiracy theory is is racially bound so african-americans for example are more likely to think the government conspired to plant crack cocaine in inner cities or created the aids virus to um, decimate the african-american population whites don't worry about that whites worry about you know the government's conspiring to um, take away the second amendment and mm -hmm. confiscate our guns that 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 sort of thing 
So no difference between blacks and whites except for the kinds of conspiracy that they embrace. Having, again, to do with somebody's trying to control us, some powerful entity. Usually it's a government agency, but sometimes corporations. So the power thing, although I'm not sure how the power thing would uh, involve, say, the flat earthers or maybe the creationists or something like that. They do think it's kind of a power thing, uh, the flat earth people. They think that uh, tricking people into believing the earth is round is a way of uh, the the powers that be kind of asserting their authority over people. It's kind of like the... uh, you know, the thing in 1984 where you make someone believe something that is false, 2 plus 2 equals uh, 5. Uh, right. if, you, if you can force someone to believe something that is false, then you have control over their, their mind. Uh, That's true. That is that is a kind of power. That's right, a psychological power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was curious if um, if you'd seen that Netflix film, Behind the Curve. About I have. The flat Earth. Yeah, you've probably seen that. You know, I was thinking about the psychology of the people that attended that conference, that they, they had the camera crew there. And uh, I think you might be right. There might be a, a sense of empowerment that we are in this room and those of us behind these closed doors here, we know what's really going on. And you can kind of see it in their faces. Maybe they're otherwise kind of nerdy, powerless people or whatever. But now they have at that moment, like we, we are empowered with this secret knowledge. Yeah, they really enjoy it. I actually went to a, a Flat Earth conference. Uh, I, I got invited to speak there. It was this re- weird one. Have you heard of uh, Mad Mike Hughes, the, the rocket guy who was trying to shoot oh, a, a steam right. rocket? Uh, up? <laughs> right. He, he organized a little conference, and they invited me as the, the kind of guest of honor to speak as a, from the skeptic point of view. And yeah. so I, I got to talk there and meet all these people. It was a very, very poorly attended conference, but the people there were really nice, and they just seemed on the whole, to be just like ordinary people, maybe a little bit more kind of like hippie and crystal type people than than, right. than average, but still they were just just ordinary people. And it was it was kind of very strange that they have this normalcy and then they also have this very, very weird set of beliefs. But then right. I guess, you know, lots of people have strange beliefs. As, as you know, people believe in all kinds of weird things. Uh, I, yeah, I, I went back in the 90s. I went to an alien abductee mm. conference and, oh. and met a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of them. And it, it was the same kind of thing. It's like otherwise they're just sort of normal, powerless people. But in this room, it's like we ha- have all shared this experience. We know it's real. And, and they had kind of read a little bit about uh, sleep paralysis and some of the psychological explanations. This is all in your head. Uh, you know, they don't, they absolutely reject that, you know, and they think something did happen to us. We are, it's almost like a chosen people kind of thing. Wow. The aliens are out there and they care about us. I mean, they cared about us enough to come into my bedroom in the middle of the night and take me away. And, uh, that you could kind of see the empowerment that they gave them. Like I have this knowledge about this thing that happened. My friend Lee McIntyre, who's a philosopher of science at Boston university, uh, he wrote a book called Post-Truth, and then his new book is The Scientific Attitude. He was just a guest lecturer in my uh, Chapman class Monday night, and he was talking about he went to one of these Flat Earth conferences, just the, the one last uh, maybe, I don't know, six months ago or so here in the States. And he said it was the same kind of thing, like behind these closed doors in this conference, hotel conference room, boy, we have got the special knowledge. And he, he didn't exactly go undercover. He was just quiet. Uh, he signed up, paid the entry fee and so on, and and just sat there for the first day. But the second day, he came out as a skeptic. You know, I don't actually don't believe this. And I'm not, I'm a social scientist, I'm a philosopher, not a physicist, but, uh, you know, let's just go through some of the arguments. And so he was curious as a philosopher who studies reasoning, if he could reason people out of a belief that they hold. 
because this is an interesting new area of research now. Uh, the backfire effect, you know, when you yeah. talk to somebody about climate change, it only they double down on it. But those studies have not been replicated, and now there's some new research showing that you actually can talk people out of, say, climate denial or, or creationism or whatever. If you, it, it, but, but it has to be done in a, a particular way where you're not insulting, you're not challenging their deeper worldview. Uh, you present the facts in a way that um, it kind of particularly a visual um, visual visual data rather than just numbers. Uh, you know, it, it, apparently, you know, we're a visual primate species, so we respond more to you know visual stimuli. And you know, he kind of went through a handful of these things that I, that I too have experienced. Like, it, you know, if you tell people you got to choose between Darwin and Jesus, you know, they're they're not picking Darwin. You know, but 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 but, but don't couch it like that. You have to yeah. give up. I have to give up my entire Christian worldview and everything I believe my whole life for this theory of evolution. Forget it. Yeah. It's very difficult to get around that that uh, that kind of false dichotomy, though. I talk to the UFO people quite a lot, and it, they always kind of leap from me explaining one particular thing to saying that, oh well, you haven't ex you haven't debunked UFOs, as, as if I was trying to debunk UFOs. So now I have to start out saying this doesn't prove everything, or you know, at the end of a little video, I will put in a disclaimer saying all I've done is explain this one little thing and that doesn't mean anything about any of the other beliefs or the other cases or the other bits of evidence. So I think they, they kind of automatically you know, leap from one thing being wrong to everything being wrong, which makes it very difficult to actually address right. like individual pieces of evidence. Yeah, Steve Pinker makes this point about climate uh, change that it got affiliated or tethered to uh, liberalism because Al Gore's film an inconvenient truth was so huge, you know, won mm -hmm. an Oscar and Academy or whatever it won, uh, and and of course he was the vice president of the you know the Liberal Party. So, you know, now climate change becomes a liberal cause. So even if you know nothing about it, you have to be against it if you're a conservative Republican because yeah. it's a it's a left wing thing. So so when you comment publicly, Pinker makes this point that. You know, most people don't know anything about climate science. It's a, it's a technical science. So, but but I can I can virtue signal to my group. I'm so committed to our party that I'm going to deny this theory over here. And uh, in a, in a way, I think that explains a lot of what goes on here. Um, you know, you don't have to know the arguments and the specific things. I'm just giving a virtue signal that I belong to this group yeah. by endorsing this or denying that. Yeah, I think that kind of extends to individuals as well. Uh, I remember you were on a show called uh, Conspiracy Road Trip like, years ago. Oh, yeah. yeah, And I remember there was a scene where I think they introduced you to the, the conspiracists and you got on the bus and there was one woman there and she was like, oh, I know who you are. I'm not going to listen to anything you say. And she kind yeah. of was ready to dismiss everything you said just because you, know, you are Michael Shermer, a skeptic, who she knew uh, was kind of opposed to her. So you get this automatic poisoning the well thing, which is, is also a very difficult thing to to get around. Yeah, we ended up actually having drinks later on with the, the whole group at the, at, at the bar after the, the sort of post-wrap dinner that they had for all of us. And she was super friendly at that point. Right. She, and she even said, you know, I had no idea. I thought you were just this asshole, <laughs> you know, just this fucking person I just wanted to hate. And, and yeah. you're a nice guy. And it's like, okay, so maybe it pays to be a nice guy at the start. <laughs> and, That's, that you know. is interesting because I've had the exact same reaction. Like uh, when I went to the Flat Earth conference, 
you know, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I, I chat with people and I'm friendly and everything. And everyone was like, yeah. whoa, you're Mick West? Like, I thought you were going to be some <laughs> kind of like arrogant uh, know-it-all asshole who was like making fun of us. And so, yeah, I think it's, uh, it, you, you've got to get that across there to people. Yeah, and, and meeting yeah, people is a great way of doing it, but yeah, otherwise right. it's difficult. And, 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 and also, dining and drinking with people is a more yeah. social friendly thing. Back in the 90s, when I first started investigating the Holocaust deniers, um, of course, they don't call themselves that, uh, but they, they were in Costa Mesa right down the road from me. So I went down to the Institute for Historical Review and met them. Now, they have kind of a conspiracy theory. You know, the, the Jews are doing this and the Jews are doing that. And it's, it's pretty obvious once you, you dig, dig not even very deep. You know, that there's a lot of anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. and particularly anti-Zionism. They don't like Israel. Um, but they really warmed up to me, just like uh, not the formal interview, you know, with the microphone and stuff, but actually just going out for a beer and pizza afterwards. And, you know, they kind of open up. You know, at first they didn't say much about Israel and the Jews. You know, they're just saying, well, we we just doubt the specific thing right here. You know, there were no holes in the in the gas chamber at Auschwitz, Birkenau, hmm. Crema number two. This was uh, such a classic case of, you know, if I can get some little minutia thing and show that it's wrong, then the whole edifice will collapse. And and this became a, actually a little rallying cry in David Irving's trial in England, uh, where no holes, no Holocaust. It's like, what? You know, people <laughs> could not figure out what the hell this had to do with. Well, so he says, if you go to Auschwitz-Birkenau and you go to Crema 2 or 3, the two big ones, there was four there actually, but the two big ones there, and there's no holes on the on the gas chamber ceilings. Well, these were subterranean gas chambers. The ceiling was maybe three feet high, and the induction ports where they poured the Zyklon B into the, the chamber were just maybe a, another foot or two above this subterranean thing. Anyway, the eyewitnesses said the SS guards clambered up on top of this roof and then took the lid off and poured the Zyklon B pellets into the wire mesh columns and then... So the gassing would occur. Okay. So and if you go there, there's no holes, hmm. says David Irving. So it's like, what? So if, the, if that was not true, then maybe no one was gassed at Auschwitz. And if no one was gassed at Auschwitz, maybe no one was gassed at Majdanek and Treblinka. And so no one was gassed anywhere. Maybe the Nazis did not have a, a plan to exterminate European Jewry. Maybe all those deaths we've seen, not as many as six million, but maybe a couple hundred thousand to a million or two. Those are due to disease and overwork and War is bad and so on. Okay, that's their argument. But if you go to Auschwitz-Birkenau, two crema two, you'll see there's no holes because there's no roof. The Nazis dynamited the whole place <laughs> as the Russians were moving in in January of 1945. Oh, it's like, well, you know, I've confronted him about this, and he doesn't back down. No, no holes, no holocaust. Or, uh, I kind of went down this little rabbit hole. No, no, it's, it's, it's an, an interesting an, thing. An it, it is an example of... You know, just how you take one little tiny thing and try to, you know, take down the entire edifice. And you make this point also when you deal with the 9-11 truthers that, you know, they kind of feel like if you can't explain every single anomaly, and the problem is, is we can't explain every single anomaly. Richard Dawkins makes this point about the creationists. They'll say, if you can't explain the left elbow of the Amazon green tree frog and where that came from, then therefore evolution did not happen and therefore no species evolved. And he's like, we can't explain every single little thing about the living world. And in any major event like 9-11, there's going to be just little weird things that happen. And the same thing with the Holocaust. There's, they made a big thing about the door at the gas chamber at Majdanek doesn't lock. 
And if you can't lock a gas chamber door, how are you going to gas a bunch of people who are going to want to push it out? So um, we went there. My co-author, Alex Grobman, and I went there. And so, and I had a list from, because when I went down to visit them in Costa Mesa, I said, give me your best arguments. Give me like the 20 best arguments you have for why you think the Holocaust didn't happen. So they did. So I kind of went down the list as I was writing my book on this. And uh, so one of them was this door doesn't lock. So Alex and I go there and the door is this big metal door that has a a handle that kind of moves like that. And and so Mm -hmm. the handle should go like that, where it locks into the door jam on this side. And uh, and sure enough, there was no hole for this thing to jam into. Uh, you, you could not lock the door. And I thought, that is kind of weird. So I said, all right, Alex, I'm going to get in the gas chamber, and you hold the door and see if I can push it open. Of course, I shouldered into it, and no problem, pushed the door right open. It's like, yeah, that is kind of weird. you know. So we had a little guy, like a 20-year-old girl, walking us around. And, she go, and I go, do you know why the door doesn't lock? She's like, no. So then she gets the next person up, and hmm. do you know the door doesn't lock? It's like, yeah, doesn't that seem kind of weird? I don't know. I didn't even know. And then I get the next person up, and then finally the head of the whole Maidonic camp, which is now a museum. He's like, what's this about the door doesn't lock? I go, yeah, you never noticed that? He goes, no. And then next thing I know, uh, we got kicked out of the camp. Basically, they thought maybe we were there to cause Mm -hmm. trouble or something. And I got a phone call there. They go, you have a phone call, Dr. Sherman. I'm like, me? At At Maidonic? What? And it was the head of the interior of all of Austria who runs all of their parks and camps and museums and the whole thing. He goes, what's this about the door doesn't lock? I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I said, I'm, we're just here to debunk the de- deniers. And there's Alex with his yarmulke. You know, we're not skinheads or something, right? And they said, oh, we have no idea. Anyway, it took me two years to find out that that door was taken off after the war and, and shipped off to Hungary for some museum. And they just huh. stuck some other door on there. Right. <laughs> you know, mystery solved. But for, for the deniers, it's like, aha, we got you on that one little thing right there. And if you can't get that, then no one yeah. does. Well, it's interesting. Like, no, no one knew about it because for most people, it wasn't really an important point. It's because uh, you know, they all knew that the Holocaust happened, so they didn't really look about it. And that's, right. that's, kind, of, um, that's kind of like a problem you come across is kind of asymmetry of interest in things you get these uh conspiracy theorists and they're really really into these things so they spend hours and hours going over all the details and then you get on the other side most mainstream scientists and historians uh are not interested you know sure more about you know holocaust denial but things like 9-11 and chemtrails and stuff there's very very few experts who are interested in it so you you get in a way like this 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 swarm of conspiracy theorists on one side and then you get a few debunkers like like me and you on the other side, and you can kind of get a bit overwhelmed in a in a way because there's just so many different things coming in. So that's kind of why I I try to use the tactic of uh, uh, getting them to focus on one thing uh, and really focus yeah. on one thing because you you know the the technique of the the gish gallop where they'll just list off a whole bunch of things, right? But right. you you got to stop them and say, you know, what's your one best piece of evidence? And a lot of the time, they, they, they're really reluctant to give you their best piece of evidence because they know that you'll be able to explain it. And they'll say, no, I'm not doing that because you'll just explain it away. And I'd say, yeah, that's, right. that's the whole point. That's the whole point. <laughs> your yeah. best evidence is easily explainable. So, you know, what right. does that say about the rest of the evidence? The other problem is the, just the, uh, the difficulty all of us have cognitively of, of being comfortable with uncertainty, like just saying... I have no idea why the door doesn't lock or this particular mm. thing there. 
and so on. Uh, I mean, most of the Holocaust historians I initially interviewed when I was writing my book, they had no idea about most of the things on that list. And, and it's like, why would we know that? I mean, it's just some tiny little minutia that makes no difference, really. And so it was kind of hard to track a lot of them down. I, I noticed the 9-11 truthers do that. Yeah, like definitely. there was something about, you know, somebody's passport ended up on the street that was in the plant. Well, you know, it's like, I don't what? Uh, and, and they have a list of things like that, just tiny little things. And and uh, anyway, so back to, to that, uh, my friend Lee McIntyre, one of the uh -huh. points he made was to, to the flat earthers, I think he, maybe you did this, was what would it take to change your mind? What, what, what just can you and I agree on some test we could do that I'll change my mind and, and agree you're right or you'll change your mind and agree I'm right if we can look at this one thing right here. So we actually got one of them to, to, to agree that they would take a flight from uh, New Zealand over to, <laughs> you know, across the, the South Pole and so on. Yeah, yeah. And the guy was ready to do it and like, yeah, okay, if we can actually do this, then I'll agree that, you know, it's obviously it's a globe and Antarctica, as you know, they, they don't think Antarctica exists. It's a white, an ice wall. Then he changed his mind later and said, no, I think the, if the pilots are in on the conspiracy, they're just going to fly around the ice wall and it'll look like a continent, but it's not actually a continent. And if your if your theory is not testable, it, you know if if it is absolutely irrefutably true, and there's nothing you can do to change my mind, then you're you're really off the page of having a conversation. Yeah, yeah, and these kind of like yeah, psychological things, the stuff that you talk about in uh, lessons three and four. We're already half an hour in, and we're only at lesson three. So <laughs> you should pick up the pace. Uh, but yeah, you talk a lot about the cognitive biases that people have, and I think like the big one. Uh, I was going to ask you, like, if you were to pick one of the cognitive biases, what do you think is the most significant of all the cognitive biases? Well, the two big ones for conspiracy theories is confirmation bias and the hindsight bias. Confirmation bias, you look for and find confirming evidence that fits what you already believe, and you ignore the disconfirming evidence. Everybody does it, um, and this is what really fuels conspiracy. Once you think the Jews are doing this mm -hmm. or the Muslims are doing that, then all you got to do is just read the daily newspaper or just kind of look around and go, aha, example, 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 ignoring all the counterexamples. And that's probably the biggest one. In the case of conspiracy theories, I find the hindsight bias, you know, after, some, after the fact reasoning, after something happens, then you go back and look at the assorted uh, – evidence and stuff that was going on at the time and think, well, they, they should have known. Like this happened with the Pearl Harbor conspiracy theorists, you know, that Roosevelt knew that Japanese were going to attack in Pearl Harbor because, look, here's a piece of intel here and here. There's three or four of these that, you know, the Japanese may attack in the Hawaiian Islands. But when you go back and look at the historical record, in fact, you know, we were we had broken their code and there was like 10,000 pieces of evidence and intel about what the Japanese might do. And you simply can't know until it already happens which are the ones that we should have been paying attention to. This is, of course, mm -hmm. a big problem with intelligence agencies. And the same thing happened with 9-11 um, that, you know, there was that August 9th memo from Condoleezza Rice to, to Bush and, and his uh, administration. You know, Al-Qaeda intends to attack the United States uh, on U.S. soil. Okay. How, how could he have, he obviously, Bush knew this was going to happen. That was August 9th. That was, you know, weeks before 9-11. And then when you look at what actually was going on, again, 10,000 pieces of intel about what Al-Qaeda was doing all over the world. Only after the fact do you look at it and go, oh, that's the one that we should have paid attention to, which is really not fair to intelligence agencies. 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you, you talk about with the Pearl Harbor thing, like the other intelligence was about them actually attacking other things, like uh, you know in the, the Philippines or somewhere like that, or right, uh, right. or even attacks on mainland United States. They they were chattering about all kinds of things. Uh, I think you said there was so much information coming through that they actually kind of stopped forwarding some of it because they were afraid right. it was going to leak and the Japanese would figure out that they were intercepting their and breaking their codes. There's just so much stuff. But yeah, another example you gave was the space shuttle. Like the people thought in hindsight that it was obvious that the space shuttle was going to fail because right. in, it's obvious that if you cool this particular O-ring down, then it, it loses its stiffness, uh, its flexibility. Um, yeah. But again, that's the hindsight bias uh, in action. Yeah, exactly. After a disaster, it's easy to figure out you know, what we should have done to prevent it. Complex systems like that, economies, political systems, complex machines like the space shuttle, uh, you know, things are bound to go wrong. You know, the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, you know, there's more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. Inevitably, systems are going to fail, and but it's so difficult to predict ahead of time, you know, which pathway is going to, is going to end up leading to failure only after the fact. And then you throw in some patternicity and agenticity where you mm-hmm. are sure there's some agent behind the pattern you've just found in hindsight that was pulling the strings to make it happen or they should have prevented it from happening and that sort of thing. Again, hindsight is twenty twenty, and that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, I was actually thinking you were going to go for cognitive dissonance because that seems to be, well, to that, me, that's, to be that's the true. thing I that's, about that. that's underlying another... everything. Yeah, that's true. That's another underlying one. Carol Tavers has a great book on that. Mistakes were made, but not by me. And uh, sort of sort of the whole history of the literature on cognitive dissonance. I liked it with conspiracy theories because there's a dissonance between the size of the event and, and the cause mm-hmm. of the event. So the assassination of JFK, you know, the most powerful uh, leader of the free world and articulate and handsome and so on. And he was taken out by who? Lee Harvey Oswald, some lone nut. No, no, no. That doesn't, you know, so we want the, you know, it's like the Holocaust is one of the worst things that's ever happened in history committed by the Nazis, one of the worst regimes in, in history. So there's yeah. kind of a, 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 a harmony between the cause and the effect. 9-11, you, you tell, you, you, you've heard the, the 9-11 truthers say this, you know, you mean 19 guys with box cutters brought down the, you know, world's largest military? Come on, impossible. You know, again, you have the size of the cause and the size, the size of the event, the size of the cause. Doesn't yeah. feel right. Princess Diana, cause of death, drunk driving, speeding, no seatbelts. You know, I don't know, what is it, a million people a year die of those causes in automobile accidents around the world something like 40,000 in America alone. Most of those are by the, one of those three causes or all three. But princesses don't die the way normal people die. So it had to be the royal family or you know whoever, MI5 and so on that were in on it. So you, you start stacking in more and more people to make the, 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 the cognitive dissonance balance and so you have harmony. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, JFK, well, it was the... You know, it was the the Cubans and the Russians and the KGB and the CIA and, and so on, they all were in on it all the way up to President Johnson. And uh, I thought Oliver Stone's film, and, and this is another sort of sidebar, the power of visual narrative. You know, Oliver Stone is such a good filmmaker that, yeah. you know, even though I was pretty skeptical of most of this, by the time I got to the end of that film, I thought, my God, if only like a half of this is true or 10% of it is true, there's got to be a conspiracy. Yeah. And then websites popped up going, here's the 100 things he got wrong in this movie. It's like, oh, crap. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I remember watching uh, JFK. Uh, 
and I didn't really know very much about uh, uh, the conspiracy theories at the time. And and you just see it all laid out on screen in such a compelling way uh, that it just it just it's like hammering it into your brain that you know this is obviously you know very very suspicious and something must have gone wrong. Like they they talk about the one thing is uh, the magic bullet. And of course, they portray it in the the in the movie as if you know the that it the bullet had to change direction in midair and do a twist and things like that, and then magically yeah. come out unscathed the other side. And when you see it there on the big screen, even though you know it's just a movie, it, it really is very compelling. Uh, totally think- back and to the left, back and to the left. They just repeated that. Yes. And it's like my God. Yes, look, it's going back and to the left. Wow. Yeah, that's. Uh, is, do you think like if we hadn't had the JFK movie, you know, the kind of the the conspiracy sphere would be at all different? Um, w- w- regarding JFK or all conspiracies? Well, both. Like you know, with JFK, like I think so many people were influenced by it. But then JFK, yeah, in a way, yeah. is kind of a foundational belief for a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists. Yeah, yeah. Vincent Bugliosi has a story in in his huge book on reclaiming history it's called and and he, he to his credit he went through every single one of the jfk mm. conspiracy theorists in detail every single minutia point which is why that book is like 1400 pages long uh but he he talked about he was at a conference of lawyers right after the jfk film came out and everybody'd seen it how many of you seen oh, everybody's seen it how many think that you know that there's that, that the warren report was mistaken and that there was a conspiracy. Pretty much every hand goes up. It's like, how many of you have read the Warren Report? Nobody read the Warren Report. And so here's a here's a room full of criminal lawyers. This is their job, and they had not even read the report, and they've already decided simply by the power of the film. Yeah, and uh, it's exactly the same with nine eleven. Uh, they don't read the the reports, uh, the NIST yeah. report or the nine eleven commission report. So you know, even though these are great reports and they've got lots of detail in them, they just they're just assuming that they're wrong. That that's right. Yeah. Well, even Loose Change, which was you know nothing like a, a an Oliver Stone film with movie stars, you know it was long enough and there was enough stuff thro- tossed into the mix, and the way the guy presented it, like I'm not saying this is, but but I'm just saying I'm just curious. I just can't explain. I'm not sure what this is. This kind of weird. And yeah, I'm totally skeptical of Loose Change, but I'm watching it going, yeah, yeah, that is kind of weird. And, uh, you know, until you get into it and go, oh, okay, so this and this and this and this, you know, has explanations. And again, back to the problem of anomalies, maybe this would be another one of our cognitive biases, is that we're not comfortable with unknown anomalies. We we want an explanation for everything. And, you know, it's just okay to say, I don't know. I mean, like with the UFO mm-hmm. um, field, you know, there's you know tens of thousands of sightings. I have no idea about most of those 10,000. I can explain these over here, the big ones, but it's okay to just say, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a flock of geese. Maybe it was a experimental test plane. Maybe it was a balloon. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but, but psychologically, most of us are not comfortable with that. Yeah. And you, you can talk about how these, these biases are kind of have evolutionary bases. Like people, you know, that is a natural thing to be suspicious of things. But something else that you talk about that's kind of a natural thing is that the the brain is a believing brain. So it almost seems like to me there's like this this kind of conflict in a way in those two things. Like the brain is has evolved to believe things, but it's also evolved to be very suspicious of things. 
Yeah. Are they are they yeah. different things? Uh, I think they're related. Okay, so let's just unpack that. So, you know, in the believing brain, I talked about the default position is just to, the, the moment you make a connection between A and B, mm. this is called learning. Uh, you know, the organism now associates the bell with the food, and therefore when you ring the bell, he, you know, he salivates to the food, Pavlov's dog, or Skinner's rats pressing the bar. And so once they've learned it, they've assumed there's a real connection, and for good reason, because there probably really is a good connection. Then I make the argument about type 1 and type 2 errors. One is more costly than the other. If you hear a rustle in the grass, is it a dangerous predator or just the wind? I'm arguing natural selection would have selected us to have brains that just assume the rustles in the grass are more likely to be dangerous predators because assuming that it's just it's a dangerous predator and it turns out it's just the wind, a type 1 error, false positive, is a, re- a relatively cost low-cost error to make. No harm, no foul. But if you assume the other, that the rustle in the grass is just the wind, and, and instead it's a dangerous predator, your lunch. You get a Darwin Award for taking yourself out of the gene pool early. So natural selection selected for us to assume most uh, rustles in the grass are dangerous predators. Okay, so this was my argument for why, a deeper reason for why people believe weird things is because we have to believe things. And weird things are not generally all that costly, so it's just easier to assume most things are true. Mm-hmm. And so this is the basis of magical thinking, superstition, even claims like autism and vaccinations. That's a simple anecdotal, you know, what's the last thing I did before my kid got diagnosed with autism? Oh, I remember we got him vaccinated. And then you, you get that meme going and then you have that one study that was debunked, but no one accepts the debunking of the study by um, Wakefield. And now you have this whole movement of, you know, which is a kind of conspiracy theory. You know, the government and the pharmaceutical companies are all in on the vaccines and they don't care about our kids. So it's just crazy. But that the, the deeper cause behind that is just anecdotal thinking, connecting A to B. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I and then I add to that patternicity, agenticity, that, that we infuse those patterns with agency. There's somebody behind that pattern that's making that happen, that, that causes that. Because predators are uh, intentional agents. Dan Dennett makes this argument about intentionality, that uh, that our brains are wired to assume uh, kind of an agency or intention behind causal vectors. So you, you, we're not wired really well to understand the physical world, you know, quantum physics and, and, and so on. There's nothing in our African ancestry to glom onto most physical laws of nature so we just assume that, you know, the wind has something behind it, the lightning has gods behind it or whatever, the basis of animism and spiritualism and polytheism and monotheism and, and so forth. Now, the second part to depack that is I got this idea from Jared Diamond when he talked about going to Papua New Guinea and pitching his tent. He was initially went to go birding because uh, he was interested in ornithology, but they'd be out camping with his Papua New Guinean natives and he said, well, let's pitch the tent underneath this tree. And they're like, no, trees fall. And then you could die in the middle of the night. He goes, well, chances of that particular tree falling are very, very low. So that's too much paranoia. But then he got to thinking, well, if we sleep under a tree every single night for 365 days a year, and we hear trees falling maybe once every thousand trees or thousand, uh, once every thousand, a tree is going to kill you in, in, within three years. So mm. it's best to be constructively paranoid. paranoid. And then I drill down a little bit more on that to talk about, um, you know, what's behind that is the second law of thermodynamics and entropy and the fact that there's so many more ways for things to go wrong than right. 
uh, you know, in terms of our bodies, you have to have all these systems operating fairly well, effectively to keep living. It only takes one of them to go wrong. You know, the heart stops beating, a valve goes wrong, a, you know, a, a, bla a brain bleed due to a clogged artery, whatever. There's, you know, a thousand things that could kill you. And so uh, Pinker makes this argument in, Enlightenment, in his book Enlightenment Now that, um, that he's kind of summarizing the research on the negativity bias. That is, we, we tend to focus on negative things more than positive things. We have more words to describe negative things, negative emotions have more adjectives than positive emotions and, and on and on and on it goes. You know, athletes are, are, are more afraid of losing than they are winning. The, you know, economists talk about loss aversion. Losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good. So you have to, to make an, get somebody to make an investment. You have to convince them that the payoff is going to be twice what the potential loss could be before they're willing to take that. Anyway, I yeah. summarize all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's uh, you know, it's fascinating thinking about how, you know, the brain evolves to, to do that. But like, you know, right now we're in a situation where conspiracy theories are about uh, distrust of the government, uh, those in power. Do you think that just kind of come, it's like a, a translation of they believe weird things happen and something is behind that. And then the only thing that's available to be behind that is the government. So it naturally falls on the government as being the suspicious yeah, party. Yeah, exactly. That, that's right. Yeah. So... Again, most, neg most conspiracy theories have a negative valence to them, and this was my explanation for why. No one argues that there's been this conspiracy to um, drive the arc of the moral universe toward freedom and justice. You know, that there's been these secret operative forces to, you know, ban slavery and overturn capital punishment and end torture and give women the rights to vote and, and gays the right to marry and so on. No one has a conspiracy th theory about this. In fact... When I wrote my book, The Moral Arc, it was kind of hard to figure out, yeah, what has been driving this? Because there is a arc. Yeah. There's definitely a kind of progress to history, but it's this sort of this bottom-up, directionless, nobody is trying to make this happen. Just all of us individually, you know, women you know, protesting and demanding the right to vote against the resistance of the whole system and so on. It's all this kind of bottom-up. Television scripts have changed. Comic books have changed. Television shows have changed. It's the way we talk about other people, Dawkins makes this point in The God Delusion. He has a chapter on um, the changing moral zeitgeist. Like you could pinpoint when mm -hmm. a novel was written down to about the hmm. decade as to how they talk about Jews and blacks and women. And it's like, and, and, and he gives examples and they're just painful to read. Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh my God, this was like not even a century ago. They were talking about Jews and blacks this way. It's terrible. And, but, how, but how did that happen? No one conspired to make that happen. It just happen from the bottom up i suppose uh the religious people will say that it's part of god's plan but then why did god start with everything being so bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> or or why did he wait two thousand years you know or whatever yeah, jesus yeah. gave this commandment and and look the christians uh you know led the abolition of slavery it's like hold on first of all that took you know 1700 years between jesus and the abolition of slavery and second of all all of the people that resisted the quakers and a few Episcopalians and a few others were Christians. They all conspired to keep slavery going because it says right there in the Bible, this is the way it's supposed to be, and God wants the mm -hmm. races to be on different continents. That, that was an argument made as late as 1967 in the mm. United States in opposition to same-sex marriage, or right. in, interracial marriage, oh, yeah. that God, God intended the races to be on separate continents. They should have never mixed. It's like this is 1960s. That's incredible. Yeah. So uh, 
Let's kind of get back to go back going back through your course. Uh, you got two very good chapters, um, lessons eight and nine, which are on nine eleven and uh, JFK, and you you did kind of a very detailed kind of point by point debunking of the, the major issues in that. Like, did you pick those because those are the ones that you personally are, are most familiar with? Because you, you did these uh, episodes of Skeptic Magazine on them. Yeah. Yeah, in part, but also uh, because they're important because people care about them. I mean, the, 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 those are probably the two most right. popular conspiracy theories, as you know, because you've written yeah. about them and, you, and you've gotten into the weeds with these guys. I mean, I was just watching your the clip about the, the little Tic Tac UFO. Oh, yeah. And I don't remember if it was the Tic Tac or the other one, but it had to do with the camera zooming in and out that made it look like it was moving faster than any physical object can move, according to modern physics and so on. And to, to me, this was such a great example of what you did uh, if, of debunking in a way, a very specific way, to solve a much larger problem, which is that this, if I assume this is true, that this object I'm seeing on the video is moving faster than it is possible for any physical object to move in, uh, under our current technological engineering c capability. Therefore, it has to be extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. How about your assumption that it's moving at that speed is wrong. What if it isn't accurately portrayed in a video that the video zooming in and out is making it look like it's moving faster? Then everything else falls away. None of those explanations are necessary. To me, that's why it pays to get into the weeds. You have to do that with these conspiracists because they're, you know, they're glomming onto that one little thing. And if you can show that one little thing is not necessarily true, then, it, then it, you kind of have to take a step back. But then you do have to really address all the weeds because uh, unfortunately they can just move to one different uh, you know weed uh, and, and go with that like we were talking about earlier with uh, the Gish Gallop. They they don't like to pick one yeah. thing. So the hard part there is, as you know, is so they have let's say a hundred points and you explain fifty of them. What what do you do with the other fifty? You know, and maybe they'll never be explained. You know, there's just just there's anomalies. You know, there was nobody else there in the in the wheat field at three in the morning. Who knows what that thing was, if there was anything at all. And, you know, I guess, you know, it's just back to that psychology of just, you know, whether or not you're comfortable with uncertainty. You know, people that are low on uncomfortable being uncomfortable with uncertainty are higher in conspiratorial thinking. We know this from research on by psychologists that, you know, that people that are more fearful or anxious Mm -hmm. either primed to be so in an experimental condition or they are just by temperament are more conspiratorially minded. My colleagues at Chapman did some studies on this showing, you know, people that are more fearful are more, and more conspiratorially minded are more likely to buy a gun, for example. It's like, ooh, oh boy, here we yeah. go. Real world consequences of conspiratorial thinking. The, uh, the, the various studies that have been done, you, you, you talk about a lot of them in, uh, I think, like uh, lesson three, uh, about the correlations between various traits and conspiracism. Uh, do you think the, those are useful to know when you're dealing with an individual? Because I mean, I think they're, they're useful in the aggregate, if you're thinking about like social policy or ways of reaching a large number of people. But are, are there other ways you can kind of leverage knowing that someone might be, you know, wanting to have a, he has a certain patronicity tendency or something yeah. like that for the individual. Because I kind of glossed over that a bit in my book, like it's not being that important because it's hard to apply I, I to an agree. individual. I agree. I think it, uh, it, it's good to know that just theoretically. I mean, if we want to construct a model of conspiracism, that's important to know. 
engaging with people. No, I wouldn't say to somebody, oh, well, so you're a paranoid personality or you're low in openness to experience or you're high in conscientiousness or, yeah. or whatever. Because, you know, they, they, no one wants to be, uh, you know, stereotyped by, by something like that. Because they don't think that in any, in any case. Um, I mean, again, this is a, a point I make in, in other areas. You know, no one in the history of the world has ever joined a cult. <laughs> you know, they join a group that they think is a really good group. We're going to help humanity. We're going to yeah. save the, help the poor. I'm going to get rich and and, and so forth. Uh, and no one in the history of the world has ever identified as a pseudoscientist. You know, they the, the people, all the so-called pseudoscientists I've dealt with, they all are sure that they have the correct theory of physics or, oh, yeah. you know, your theory of evolution is wrong, but I've got it all worked out here. And Einstein was wrong and... And, and Stephen Hawking was wrong, and I have this new theory of physics. I get these, you know, these theories every every month, and it's like they don't think I'm a pseudoscientist going down to my pseudo lab to collect pseudo facts for my pseudo theory. They think they're right, you know. So it doesn't help to you know to gauge people on that level. Um, I always just try to again, like you, just to try to be friendly, try to be respectful, just and then ask some probing questions like, mm-hmm. well, how do you know that's true? What you know, how did you arrive at that belief, and what would it take to change your mind? And uh, see if see what they come up with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the important thing really is just keeping them talking and uh, giving them new information. Uh, I mean, the other thing on the nine eleven truther thing that I, I added to the course, uh, I was I was thinking about um, Dan Danny Kahneman's research on the the conjunction fallacy. Hmm. This is the famous Susan experiment. You know, Susan was a a um, uh, a social activist, and I forget what the characteristics are of her when she was in college. There's a whole list of these things. And then, you know, what's more likely, that Susan was a bank teller or that Susan is a bank teller and a feminist activist? And everybody thinks, well, she had to be a feminist activist and a bank teller because look at her history. But the Kahneman's point was that the conjunction fallacy is that the probability of two independent factors happening at the same time is always going to be lower than any either one of the independent factors happening. So I I got to thinking about that. It's like that applies to the nine eleven truthers. We don't have to deal with any of this stuff of their thermite and super thermite and all, all their little arguments. They're claiming that um, you know the planes hit the buildings and this other independent thing happened that explosive devices were planted in the buildings. Those are two separate independent events. The probabilities of both of those happening are lower than the probability of either one of them happening. We know the planes hit the building because we've seen the videos and so on, and tons of eyewitnesses. And so the probabilities that that happened, which we know happened, and the explosive devices were planted in the buildings, and then that's fraught with problems. These are Mm. two of the most secure buildings in in all of America. And under the pretenses of fixing the elevators, they snuck in, broke through the drywall, planted the – and so on. And they knew exactly which floors the planes were going to hit on. Uh, at, at, so they planted the explosive devices there on those particular and, and on it goes. So the probabilities of all that happening are so low yeah. to me. I don't even, you, we didn't even need to bother with all the other arguments that they made. It's hard, because that, it's hard to talk about probabilities because uh, they don't really make sense on an, an, an individual case like this because things either happened or they didn't. And you know, it's how do you talk about. You know, I wasn't entirely convinced by. I must say, by your argument for the conjunction fallacy. Okay. As I right. think, I think the you know the objections raised about the conjunction fallacy, like people take the question as meaning, was she a bank teller and not a feminist, or was she a bank teller and a feminist? I think a lot of people oh, answering okay. the question All read right. it that way, and they think of these things okay. as being 
being separate, and that they don't necessarily think that you're you're asking when you're asking about say was it planes and no was it planes or was it planes plus explosions? They're thinking you're asking was it planes plus no explosions? So that really it boils down to just the left side of that argument, uh, the, uh, okay. which would be like but, but, just the last bit. But, but, but isn't that what 9-11 truthers believe? Most of them. I mean, you do you do talk about oh, yeah. the demarcation line there. The no-planers are skeptical of the ones that accept that the planes did hit the buildings. But just the ones that accept that the planes hit the buildings and that explosive devices were planted, right? Isn't that what they believe? Yeah, but I think, I think that's very much the mainstream uh, for 9-11. The, the no-planers are a very, very small fringe minority of uh, crazy people, essentially, who think that no planes hit the World Trade Center and it was all holograms yeah. or something. So when you're talking to 9-11 truth, they're all saying, yeah, planes hit the building. Some of them will say that there were remote control planes, uh, mm. but then they're saying, right. like, right. in addition, there was a... Uh, so from their perspective, I don't think the probability of the plane hitting or not is really really a factor there. The probability is like you got to focus on is how how plausible is it that you would have sneaked explosives into the buildings, which, as you know, is very implausible, especially as you pointed out on the same floor that uh, the planes hit and was burning for uh, you know, nearly an hour before it collapsed. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, this uh, again another one of the. The points I, I enjoyed about your book was that line of demarcation. It's such an important mm. subject. I, I did this once. I did a, uh, I had a three-way debate with a young Earth creationist and an older Earth creationist, and I represented the evolutionary position. And I just got the two of them going at each other. You know, started debunking each other's arguments. So I didn't have to do it. Uh, you know, because we all have that sort of line of demarcation where we where, where we draw oh, the yeah. line there. But but the, but back to the conjunction fallacy. Yeah. Mm. Um, it does seem to me that just just a simple argument, leaving out the details, that probabilities of the planes hitting the buildings and the explosive devices, leaving aside how, however they would have gotten them in there, isn't that a lower probability than either one of them happening independently? Sure, but we know that the planes hit the buildings, and all the nine eleven truthers know the planes hit the buildings. Uh, it's it's not really you know kind of that's not that's that's a one on the probability scale. So it, okay, when you multiply right. them out, it, it comes out the same. Uh, but you know, well, that, it's it's an interesting thing guess, to think about the conjunction yeah, fallacy. Yeah, but I, I, I yeah, have okay. problems with the way it's phrased, uh, like that. Yeah. Okay. I guess I, I hadn't seen the critiques of the Susan conjunction fallacy. That 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 is interesting. Although I, I guess it would apply to any conspiracy theory because one of my sort of debunking points again that, that you make too is that the more complex the system has to be, the more mm -hmm. people that are have to be involved to pull it off and the more things that have to happen in just the right sequence the lower the probability is that that's yeah. a real conspiracy yeah definitely because that's I, very difficult to pull off yeah and i think uh, i kind of a better way of talking about it than than just like you know how likely is this thing is a thing you do like very well in the book is giving like historical context for real conspiracies and what actually it, it took to pull uh, these various things off and how kind of narrowly focused they were. Like you, you talk about, I think, the uh, the Iran-Contra Iran scandal, yeah. which is a relatively small number of people, and it did actually get, it did actually come out because it's very, very hard to keep things secret. And if that came out, then much bigger things would also come out, you know, something like on the scale yeah. of 9-11. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, 
again, Clinton couldn't even get a blowjob in the White House, as, the, as people joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nixon couldn't even get, uh, you know, his plumbers to break into the Democratic headquarters successfully. I mean, these are, you know, see, you know, these are FBI G-men who were supposedly professionals at this. And, you know, it just shows you how hard it is to really pull off a real conspiracy. I mean, again, Volkswagen got caught cheating the emissions scandal and, you know, these these you know, insider trader stuff every week somebody gets busted for it. I mean, those are all kinds of conspiracies that are very detailed and narrowly focused and still hard to pull off. Most people get busted. Yeah. You know, the, I, I've been reading um, Edward Snowden's uh, memoirs and uh, his autobiography. And, and uh, gosh, it's just, you know, it is kind of illuminating about the kinds of stuff governments are willing to do. This was under the, the, not just the Bush administration, but under Obama, you know, Mr. Transparency. And, uh, you know, he, uh, Snowden talks about this keystroke, uh, I forget what it's called, key something, keystone, uh, where you can actually take over somebody's uh, personal computer and watch what they're watching on their screen, porn, or they're having a vi video conference with their child or whatever. It's just incredible. He, and, he's, and he describes that. I'm sitting here watching this this father with his little son on his lap, and it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's it is quite amazing, and and yeah, you know, that's something you you talk about a lot as well. Like there's one thing, uh, there was an an old program that was instituted after World War Two, like in 1945, it was Project Shamrock. All right, so that was that was the project that they they recorded all of the telegrams coming into the United States right. from 1945 until the 1970s, until the Church uh, Commission, uh, Church Committee, which was quite quite incredible. I you know never never actually heard of. Uh, Project Shamrock, but it just seems like you know the same type of thing going on. Yeah, today. and that and that that church committee thing was really important, which is why it's good that we have those kinds of things. I think we need another one now about the Russian meddling in Ukraine or whatever else is going on that we don't quite know about. Because from the church committee, we also found more stuff about the JFK assassination, mm -hmm. including that you know it was Kennedy that set up the secret recording devices in, in, in the Oval Office, you know, not Nixon, he, you know, mm -hmm. not, not Johnson, Kennedy before them. Wait, wait, a Democrat, he's on our side, liberals say. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so this stuff goes on. And MK Ultra came out because of that. You know, we were doing what? Mind control and all that Manchurian candidate stuff, which everybody assumed, well, that's just a movie, you know, trying to figure out how to brainwash people. No, actually, it was a real program. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Project Stargate. Uh, I didn't talk about that in the in the course, but uh, you know this was the CIA's attempt to um, master um, this um, remote viewing, mm. where you have these remote viewers, these psychics in a room in Washington D.C. somewhere, and and they're trying to determine telepathically where the missile silos are located in Russia or wherever, yeah, or where Osama bin Laden is hiding. No, that that was that came later, but. You know, and, and so these guys are, they claim they got hits. It's like, yeah, I'm sure you got some hits, but is it statistically significant number of hits? Are they important hits? And, you know, this is kind of how psychics operate. But but the point was, it's like, wait, we spent $20 million uh, testing remote viewing? That That's just bullshit stuff. We Skeptics debunked decades ago. I mean, Rand, the amazing Randy debunked this stuff back in the yeah. 80s. We were spending money on this? The government was, yeah, so... Again, we have to acknowledge to the Alex Jones of the world that some of this stuff is real. It does go on. There are, you know, I, I, we should not just trust government for sure, and and it isn't just the Republican administrations we shouldn't trust. You know, the Democrats they they've done just as many nefarious things. Yeah, well, certainly over yeah you know, the last hundred years or so, like uh, 
the stuff that was going on was obviously under yeah both both administrations, Democrat and Republicans, all the interventions in foreign uh, countries and things like that. Lecture eleven, you talk about the deadliest conspiracy in history, uh, which mm. um, was essentially the events leading up to World War One. Uh, why did you devote a whole chapter to that? Well, I, I knew a fair amount about that. I just read a book on um, that the whole origins of the First World War and the causes, and there was a whole section on that. And then there was a uh, there was a film about uh, Princip, uh, Gabriel Princip, and the assassin. Whether or not he was a pot, like a, uh, what, what did what did Oswald call himself? I'm a pot. Patsy. Patsy, yeah, where he was, where Gabriel Princip was described as something like a Patsy. Somebody else was pulling those strings, and maybe the strings were being pulled by Serbia itself, the government, as a false flag operation. Yeah. You know, for their own nefarious things. I thought, whoa, this is so much like the JFK thing. I got to look into this some more, and I did. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not super convinced. I know the correct answer. I, I think it was, you know, this sort of. Uh, Serbian nationalist black hand conspiracy with some other people behind the scenes, but probably not government agents, probably these independent groups, I think. <laughs> not 100% sure in that. And I was amazed to see that there is some debate about that. Uh, but that, you know, whatever the conspiracy, whether it's this black hand Serbian nationalist group or the government itself, you know, this led to this cascade of consequences yeah. that triggered the First World War and, you know, tens of millions of people dead. That's a conspiracy. Yeah, and obviously it was, yeah, you could describe it as being a conspiracy theory on the part of the Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire right. and that they right. they used a particular interpretation of what happened to uh, to attack, um, uh, was it Serbia? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that's uh, that's where I made that, uh, also made that link between made it happen on purpose, my hop, mm -hmm. and let it happen on purpose, lie hop, from the 9-11 truth theorists that... Uh, then I called it capitalized on what happened on purpose, cowhop, <laughs> which is in, in a way kind of what Roosevelt did. I mean, Roosevelt wanted to get the United States into mm -hmm. um, the European war, but he needed a pretext for that, and that was Pearl Harbor. So, you know, of course, the you know he let it happen on purpose or he made it happen on purpose. No, it just happened. But he then did what governments often do. They take advantage of something that just happens and then utilize it for their own political gain. That, that's, a, that's a true conspiracy that's a little more nuanced, but it is a kind of a conspiracy. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and that's, again, like the type of perspective, I think, that uh, you want to give people, like yeah, tell people that people exploit things, like uh, the Gulf of Tonkin attacks uh, or not right. attacks. Uh, they weren't exactly a false flag. It was kind of a mistaken report of an attack, but uh, McNamara like leapt upon it and yeah. uh, exploited it. Uh, you know, capitalized on it. I'm glad you. I'm glad you came up with uh, uh, Kai Hop. What's or whatever it was. Cow like. Hop. Yeah. Cow, cow Hop. hop. <laughs> capitalized uh, on what happened on purpose. Yeah. Because I used uh, to call it uh, "Glad it happened." But then I couldn't. Well, I happened. couldn't figure out what to, how to end it. So it was lie hop, my hop, and G I H. Cow hop. So, <laughs> so, so I right. will use uh, cow hop now, which is a, a, a more well, fits better I, in the that's scheme. Why I also also wrote about um, you know operate Operation Northwoods. Uh, mm -hmm. Joe Rogan made a big well. Alex Jones made a big deal about that on Joe Rogan's show. I'm like, wait, Operation Northwoods? Yeah, I got to look into that a little bit more. I forget what the details of that. That came out during the church. Well, actually, it came out initially. Johnson had heard about it after Kennedy was assassinated, and he covered it up 
because he thought this could be really bad for Cold War tensions if the yeah. American public fi finds out, if the Russians find out what we, Kennedy administration, was planning on doing to assassinate Castro and and also create false flag operations. Like we'll have a uh, one of our jets doctored up to look like a Russian MiG, and then it'll it'll buzz fly some American uh uh, commercial planes, and that will say the Russians did that, and then, then we'll invade Cuba. You know, and they had like a dozen different things like that. Now, to his credit, Kennedy said, "We're not doing those things. It's crazy." But the fact that that his administration, all the way up to McNamara, were going, "Yeah, this this seems like a good idea. Let's do that, mm -hmm. and we'll assassinate uh, Castro while we're at it." You know, and it wasn't until Reagan was president that Reagan passed that law. We will not. It's against the law to assassinate foreign leaders. Yeah. You know, because I'm, I'm sure he was a little worried himself because, you know, we we were we had been doing this in South America, backing uh, South American dictators. You know, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Hitchens wrote about this, about um, uh, he held this book on Henry Kissinger as a war criminal. And I remember reading this going, God, I never thought about Kissinger in that regard. But, yeah, I can kind of see the argument. Not, not sure I go that far, but all the conniving things we were doing. Secretly, you know, Congress did not know about it, so the public doesn't know about it. So this is a kind of conspiracy to topple certain dictators that were more communist and back dictators that were either leaning toward democracy or more fascist in South American countries it, to the point where we're, you know, sending CIA operatives, we're providing them with uh, weapons and people are dying in these, some of these false flag operations to make it look like the communists did this to the fascists, therefore the Democrats should come in, you know, all this stuff. This is all, you know, came out in the 90s about what we were doing in the 60s and 70s in South American countries. It's like, holy crap, that's pretty bad. And that's a real conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, yeah, like I was saying, like it's, it's really important to tell people that real conspiracies happen. That's why I started the first words in my book were that conspiracies are real, of course. And you start out uh, your, your, yeah. your series like listing all these conspiracies. And you, you, list, uh, you list more in the, in the last lecture. Like you're talking about, uh, let's see, the real X-Files, conspiracy theories and myth and reality. And you're talking about kind of the, the real underpinnings. Like in this case, it's interesting you, it's kind of a switch in a way to go, go to uh, UFOs. Uh, yeah. Because I almost feel like UFOs exist apart. Of it. I know when you were going through my my scheme of classifications of, of uh, conspiracy extremeness, and we get to UFOs, and I think I put it at an eight or something like that, seven or eight. Yeah, and I could tell yeah. you weren't entirely convinced that it deserved to be quite so high uh, on the on the thing because it's it's you know, in some ways it seems like a almost like a harmless harmless hobby rather than a conspiracy theory. Um, yeah, I, I guess. The way I think about it is this, you know, and again, in terms of your, your strategies for dealing with these people, is to acknowledge that very probably extraterrestrial intelligence is, exists somewhere mm -hmm. in the cosmos. And you can go through all the SETI arguments, and that's, that's reasonable. Now, have they come here? I, so I separate those two separate questions. Are they out there? Have they come here? Now, let's look at the evidence for have they come here. And, you know, this goes back to Sagan kind of deconstructing the arguments back in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, always it's you know the evidence is thin it's always questionable it's not clear you know we don't have a type specimen there's no physical body we can all look at there's no spacecraft all we have are these sort of blacked out paragraphs in in mm -hmm. secret document you know, government doc classified documents and we have blurry photographs and grainy videos it's always kind of in that, that kind of questionable area if by ufo you mean the u means extraterrestrial now 
you know, it, to me, if, if you mean by you experimental aircraft that the government is secretly working on, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Or maybe the Russians have some experimental aircraft we don't know about. That's entirely possible. So there I would agree with you. It, it, you know, it, it should have fairly high standing. Yeah. Yeah, something uh, a little perspective thing that was kind of surprising to me was you talk about Roswell and how you know Roswell was a brief flare up of things, but then for twenty years Roswell didn't even really make the grade in terms of the most interesting uh, you know UFO sightings, and until someone wrote a book about it, and then it bumped back up again. Right, and then eyewitnesses suddenly remembered things yeah. that they saw and so on. By the way, you had um, Nick Pope on your your yeah, podcast, I which I really enjoyed. Um, I, I've not met him personally. Uh, I've seen him on every one of those ancient alien right, yes. shows. I mean, he's like a regular, I don't know if he's one of the producers or what, I don't know what, but he's on every one of them. You would think he's totally down the rabbit hole with those guys. And on your podcast, he's going, I have no idea if aliens have come here. I, I can't say, we cannot say that the evidence is not good enough to make that conclusion. I'm like, dude, you've never said that in hundreds of hours on television. You know, and he, but, and he, but, but, but then I've watched a few more of these episodes. They're streaming now on Hulu, I think. Mm. Uh, and and he couches the language so carefully, you know, like is it possible that? And it could be. And some people are saying that. You know, it's almost yeah. Trumpian, like you know, Trump says, you know, people are saying what people? Oh, a lot of people. Well, well wait a minute. <laughs> you know, and it's hard to pin down that. And I, I think, thought you pinned yeah. him down perfectly. And he said right there, uh, well, you don't know. Yeah, well, we were just two guys having a conversation. But I think, you know, when you see him on the other shows, he's he's, he's an entertainer. And, you know, mm. that's kind of how he makes a living is, is to a certain degree, exaggerating things like his experience and his opinions uh, with regards to aliens. Because, you know, he, he's, he, does, he does make a living doing it now. So he, in some ways, is kind of forced to do it. But when he, when he was just like chatting with somebody one-on-one i think perhaps yeah it uh, yeah it's yeah a, a well also he, he he's played up of course or maybe the tv producers play up his role as a he worked for the de- defense industry or defense department or whatever in england you know that, that gives him cachet like oh well he, he was on the inside yeah. so he knows what they were doing well he told you that you know most of the stuff i was doing had nothing to do with aliens and ufos <laughs> Yeah. That's right. But it sounds good uh, when he says he, he ran the the British government's UFO program, <clears throat> even though so it wasn't like, wasn't really it, much of a program. Right. It's like Stan Friedman always maybe may he rest in peace because I always like Stan. Uh, but you know he always made a big deal. You know, nuclear physicist. It's like ooh, nuclear physicist. So he must have some inside knowledge about. It. It's like UFO people when they cite you know well he was a general. So what? Well right. he was the town sheriff. So what? You know they have the same eyeballs and brains that we have. They're no, they're, they're no better at observing things. But, but you know we want that kind of argue, well, it's an argument from authority. You know we want the people making the claim to have some credibility. Yeah. So, uh, so what do we do about all this? Uh, how do we actually like? You know, how do we fight the tide of disinformation? Like you, you, you're obviously like your your course is great in like understanding it and giving a lot of context to it. But like, what what do you think are like the practical steps that uh, we should be advocating for? Uh, well, first of all, I think the kinds of things you and I are doing are important. That is nailing down the details, mm. and, and not just us, but you know, uh, Snopes, for example, has been at yeah, this for a yeah. long time, and and now there are other groups like that fact checking political speeches. So, Politifact, for example, will fact check 
Trump's speeches in real time. Then you can kind of watch the speech and you can go online and see they're checking as he is speaking, you know. And there and there's a half a dozen of these fact checking sites that have come come to fruition in the last couple of years. That to me is an encouraging uh, sign that we're not living in a post truth world. The cover story of the current issue of Skeptic has Steve Pinker on it, and he wrote the cover story for us. Are we living in a post truth world? Well, he he just we titled it. We're not living in a post truth world. And so his opening paragraph is: uh, Is the statement we're living in a post-truth world. True? Now, the moment you open your mouth, you've lost the argument because you're making an argument. Yes. You're saying, I think there's evidence that we are living in a post-truth world. Wait, evidence? <laughs> Facts? You mean these things still matter? Just like the anti-free speech people. Yeah. The moment they open their mouth to, to make an argument against free speech... They've lost because we're giving them the platform to go ahead and make an argument and voice their speech. And, uh, you know, so I don't think we're living in a post-truth. I don't think conspiracy theories have taken over. the world. I, I think we can keep pushing as we always have, that fact-checking matters, evidence matters, values, uh, the enlightenment values of truth-telling, that matters. We do want to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what actually happened? I, I do think not just all these bottom-up fact-checking type sites and magazines like Skeptic and books like yours, but um, but like the, the checks and balances, the stuff we've seen now during the Trump administration, you know, all the, the the Trump haters, you know, they keep portraying like this is the end of the world. Actually, he hasn't done all that much because of all the pushback he gets and all the legal pushback and and the checks and balances are working fairly well. Uh, you know, the whistleblower protection, it, it seems to be in place. And here, uh, Edward Snowden has one of the best-selling books in America this week. You know, he's a whistleblower. Now, true, he has to live in in Moscow. I'm not sure that's a, such a great trade-off for him, but, you know, maybe he'll be able to come back. The whistle laws protecting whistleblowers is, I think, still pretty solid. So I'm encouraged. Um that you know we're 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 stemming the tide of craziness. Yeah, I know that a lot of the corporations are working on things as well, uh, partly because they want to avoid regulation, but partly because they want to do good, and they are fighting against things like disinformation and extremism. Uh, like, yeah, you saw that with Facebook. I mean, Zuckerberg and so you know they're running scared. They don't want to yeah. be dere- they don't want to be regulated. They don't want to be broken up. You know, Elizabeth Warren wants to break up the. The, the huge corporations, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and so on. I don't think that's necessary. I think, you know, just leaning on them socially, it, it, you know, has a pretty big effect. Um, and, you know, so that, 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 that's working, I think, fairly well. Yeah. Uh, you, you are a member of the uh, intellectual dark web. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Such as it is. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the, the themes of that are kind of, talking about things that are not acceptable to talk about uh you know things that uh, i don't know say various issues like gender and language and things like that and immigration yeah. and, and whatnot um do you think you know the 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 themes of the intellectual dark web in pushing back against not being able to talk about things are relevant uh to like conspiracy theories do we need more yeah. discussion totally i mean that you know, the sh- shining the light in the dark spots is going to attenuate fear and anxiety people naturally have about those dark places that we know sometimes are real. Therefore, open conversation and dialogue is the only hope we have. 
to solving these problems. If you're worried about discrimination against LGBTQ, for example, um, the best thing we could do is have conversations about, mm. well, how many people are gay? How many people are really trans? What does it mean to be trans? I had on my podcast yesterday, Douglas Murray has this book, The Madness of Crowds Out, in which he's pushing back against that. And, you know, he's got a pretty big audience and a receptive audience to this. Like, yeah, yeah. What, why are we talking about trans? How many people are we talking about? And, and the answer is we have no idea. There's almost no research on any of this. So, you know, sans research, people just go to these kind of natural prejudices, prejudiced places. No, let's let's have an open conversation about every single thing that's of interest to people. Now, you don't have to talk about everything. Point I make when I was in uh, graduate school, I could see that the race and IQ issue. I was in psychology. This was already a a pretty sensitive subject in the 70s. And I thought, you know what, I'm just not going to do that. I, Mm. I can see why African-Americans would not be too happy about this research. And I'm not sure why I'd want to know if there really are differences in IQ between blacks and whites. And, and if I did know that, what, what I would do with that, it's, I'm totally supportive of people that want to research that and, you know, talk about it. We should talk about it. Uh, but we don't have to do everything, right? So there's there's censoring things, which we don't want to do, but you don't have to fund research. Right. You don't have to, you know, uh, you know, encourage people to do that. Yeah, and there's some things that are just so touchy that even if there's something to be gained uh, from researching it, it might be offset by the negative uh, social consequences of, of of focusing on it. And I think for some of the, some individuals as well, it's uh, you can you can pr- protest that you should be able to talk about things, but realistically, it's going to have an effect if you're you want to research things like eugenics or something like that. Right. Yeah, you know, the, the whole, um, the, the thing about the intellectual dark web, our, you know, our, our focus on free speech and is kind of a fundamental principle. Uh, and, you know, we've highlighted a lot, you know, the deplatforming of speakers on college campuses. We don't want that kind of censorship. Okay, first of all, it's not a First Amendment issue. Government is not coming in to tell Milo Yiannopoulos he can't speak at UC Berkeley. No, it's more, you know, bottom-up students protesting. Shouldn't students have the opportunity to hear Milo Yiannopoulos or Ben Shapiro? Yeah, sure. Uh, but the universities don't have to invite them. <laughs> you know, they're not required to invite every single person who has some weird belief. Uh, I, I would invite, say, a George Will uh, or some kind of centrist conservative to talk about the conservative position so that liberal students have some idea why half of America votes Republican. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't invite Richard Spencer or um, Jared Taylor. You know, they're conservative but they're really kind of right-wing neo-nazi type and no i would not represent uh, not invite them to represent conservatism you don't have to invite everybody like a ben shapiro you know there's idws have made much about the the grief ben shapiro has gotten at at some of his campus um uh, appearances and that's true but you know he's given hundreds of these talks and most of them i've watched quite a few online He's received very well, standing ovation. There's a huge conservative movement on campus. They love him, and he invites people that disagree with him to come to the front of the line, and he uh, hmm. only a couple do. Uh, mostly he's not deplatformed. The heckler's veto does not shut him down. So while all the incidences that have happened that you know we're concerned about campus craziness, uh, they're still kind of in the minority. Most of the time on college campuses, things are just going along like they usually do. Most speakers are not deplatformed. 
most of the time students are not burning down the local Starbucks or whatever in protest to the speaker. That's still fairly rare. So I'm not I'm not in an existential mode of, you know, we're facing a crisis in Western civilization now. Yeah. Uh, just a, a last topic. Uh, what do you think of the skeptical community? Uh, do you think there's a viable skeptical community and, you know, should there be a different skeptical community? Um, well, obviously, I published a magazine called Skeptic, so I, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think we, ha we have a viable movement. Just b by some background, the modern skeptical movement really began in the 70s when Uri Geller and some of the other New Agers kind of got popular and famous. And a handful of people like the Amazing Randy, Ray Hyman, Paul Kurtz, um, Marcello Truzzi, a sociologist, and a, and a few others, um, um, uh, Martin Gardner, mm -hmm. Uh, said, you know, we need to push back against these people. I mean, I mean Uri Geller, the Israeli spoonbender, he's like on the cover of Time magazine. It's like, what? He's on these top major talk shows. It's like, okay, this is like, who do you choose to take on to be skeptical? Well, if they're big and people really want to know and millions of people are watching, we, you know, we should say something. And that, that's what launched the um, Center for Inquiry, as it's now called, and Skeptical Inquirer, and then we launched Skeptic Magazine in the 90s. But there are dozens of magazines around the world and hundreds of local small mm. skeptic groups and millions of people that, you know, I don't know if they call themselves skeptics, but they, you know, they embrace that kind of skeptical perspective. And, and what we do is it's kind of specialized knowledge like what you do. You know, the average person is not going to know how fast a building falls when it's, you know, collapsing. Why would you know that? Most people don't know that. And, uh, you know, or the door doesn't lock on the gas chamber at my dawn. You know, who would know these things, right? But skeptics know that. You know, like, how do people walk across hot coals in bare feet without getting burned? Well, here's the physics of it. Now, most physicists don't know that. Why would yeah. they know that? Skeptics know that. So it's kind of a specialized thing. That's mm. what we do and skeptics do. I think it's it's pretty solid. My one concern about it is this is more really the atheist movement than the skeptical movement is being too political. That is, the, the, after, the atheist movement started to get really big after Dawkins' 2006 book, The God Delusion. But then it splintered. First, it splintered about who was militant atheist versus more moderate atheist. You know, you know, and, and, and because Richard and Sam Harris and and Hitchens, not so much Dawkins, but the, you know, they're really go for the jugular. I mean, we're gonna just drive right in there and debunk these crazy claims. And anybody that believes this God stuff is deluded. Wow. Okay. Well, sometimes that works, but other times that doesn't work. And more moderate approaches that other people take work better. You know, there's, so there's no single answer. So the first division was between militant atheists and more moderate atheists. And the next split was social justice atheism. So atheist plus. The plus is social mm -hmm. justice. Well, that's kind of a dog whistle label that means something very specific politically, far left, progressive liberalism. And this is very different from kind of more centrist uh, uh, liberal liberalism. And so a lot of atheists were very alienated by that, including me. Like, well, but wait, we, we all embrace and endorse science and critical thinking and reason and enlightenment values, right? That's kind of a big tent right down the middle. And we all agree on that. But the Atheist Plus are way off to the left going, no, no, no. If you can't tick the box for all 12 of these things, you're out. And hmm. the same thing happened with the humanist movement and feminist movement and Marxist movement and the Ayn Rand objectivist movement. 
I, I think there's a psychology here, a sociology of social groups, social movements. They splinter apart when they fight over little tiny doctrinaire uh, portions of their whole platform. And if you can't tick the box for all 12 or whatever, then you're out. And the mo moment you start kicking people out of your group, your group's going to get smaller. So I do worry about that. Yeah. Yeah, actually, the last question I had written down was, is the skeptical tent too big? And uh, <laughs> I think yeah, you, well, you touch on well, that. I, to me, I think everybody should be skeptical. I mean, people are just—they're not thinking mm. of themselves as skeptical. But if you're skeptical of what Trump is doing with Ukraine this week, you're a skeptic. Uh, and, and even if you're a 9/11 truther, they're skeptics. Okay, so the skepticism thing is good. That's right. fine. Be that... suspicious of the government. The government does do suspicious things. That's Absolutely. okay. Yeah, we yeah. should all be skeptical. Then it comes down to, well, how do we know what's true? Right. And that's really science is our best tool. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I want to thank you very much. Is there any, any last words you want to uh, say or touch upon? Oh, well, just thanks for having me on. Thanks for your important work. Uh, the, you. the course itself, you can just go to audible.com and, and get it there. I don't think it's on the teaching company website yet, but audible.com or Amazon has the course. And, uh, yeah, so keep up the good work. And, thank uh, you. You know, thank fun. you yeah and you too and yeah i really enjoyed the book and i, I can recommend it to anybody who wants to get a uh, like a good perspective on conspiracy theories uh it's, uh, it's got some very interesting i learned some new things which is saying something as i'm a, a long-term <laughs> conspiracy guy <laughs> you, you, so, are, you are for sure it was, it was all right well thanks nick